leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. You know the best part of that song? You know the best part, right? There's a little bit of emphasis when we sing one of the words. It's just a three-letter word. And the word is, Oh, all my hope is in Jesus. All my sins are forgiven. It's amazing to think, if I just had some hope in Jesus, I wouldn't really have any hope at all. If some of my sins had been forgiven, I really wouldn't have any forgiveness at all. But praise God this morning. All my hope is in Jesus. All my sins have been forgiven. Thank God that yesterday's gone because I've been washed by the blood. Is that your testimony this morning? Give God glory in His house this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in a brand new series this morning? If you'll take them and turn to Genesis chapter 12, we're beginning a brand new series, The Life of Abraham, a friend of God on a journey of faith. I'm excited about where God's going to take us over the next several months. This is one of the most important characters in all of the Bible. But as I announce this series, I think it's important to give a little bit of a disclaimer, because primarily this series... It's not about Abraham. Primarily, this series is about Abraham's God. And so what we're going to see over the next few weeks is really an incredible narrative. Because friends, I know that there are a lot of you, you, you enjoy fiction and some of you science fiction, and that's fine. But what we're going to study together is no fable. It's no fiction. The Word of God is facts. These are historical narratives. And in fact, what you're going to see in the next few weeks is that the Bible has to be true. And one of the reasons I believe, among many, that the Bible is true is that if it were not true, if someone were recording the events that we're about to read, why in the world would you record some of the negative things about the supposed heroes of the faith? Why would you write down some of the things that we're going to read about Abraham and even about Jacob and all of the studies that we're going to look at? Because what we're going to see is that what God wants to highlight through these characters is not only His redemptive plan, but that the story of the whole Bible is the story of God Himself. This is real life and about real people and about a real God who has a real plan of real redemption. And so we start this story 4,000 years ago. About 2,000 years before Christ was ever born. To help you come from the other side, it's about 400 years, four centuries after the flood had taken place on the earth. And what we find going on in the world is that the population is booming. But as the population booms, there is spiritual rot. You see, even after the flood, four centuries later, it wasn't that people got holier, it wasn't that they got godlier, but the world was 
rapidly moving in the same direction that it was going to find itself in before the flood when God rescued the world through Noah's family. And so the Lord looks down upon the earth and God in His infinite wisdom and in His mighty sovereignty, He develops a plan not only to redeem the Jewish nation and the people of Israel, but He develops a plan to redeem the entire world and it starts with one man. A man who was named Abram, and we'll see eventually his name was changed to Abraham. And the Bible tells us that he was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. What's interesting about Ur of the Chaldees is it was located in what's known, and you're going to remember this from history classes, you remember everybody telling you about the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia? That's exactly where we find where Abram lived. And where Abram lived was in a city called Ur, and Ur was the biggest city in the world at that time. There were about 50,000 people just in the city of Ur because there in that Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, it's modern-day Iraq, right there is, is where population centers and city building centers had begun to take place. And that's where Abram is living. Now, it's often been said, sometimes we assume things about biblical characters before they step onto the scene, that Abram was somehow a follower of the Lord before the call that we're going to read about in just a few moments. But I think that what we're going to see throughout his life is that Abram was a product of his culture. And his culture was a culture of people who were polytheists. That means they believed in many gods. They were idolaters. They were rank, immoral people. And yet, out of that, what we find is that God doesn't appear to a group of people. He doesn't appear to a city of people. He doesn't to a family of people. He appears to one man. Redemption and salvation all throughout Scripture. Because really, from Genesis chapter 12 all through, through the end of the Bible, what you were reading about is God's plan of redemption. How no Bible, he would establish a Jewish nation, but how through that nation, he would reconcile, all would establish a Jew unto himself, but how through that nation, he would reconcile all peoples unto himself, eventually through Christ. But as we read this together today, I want you to know that as he calls Abraham as a 75-year-old man and his wife as a 65-year-old woman, it wasn't that Abraham sought God. It was that God sought Abraham. And when he sought Abraham, he issued him a call and he gave him a covenant. And those are the two things I want us to focus on today as we stand and read together. Genesis chapter 12, we begin in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That sets the tone for the rest of the Bible. Verse 4, So Abram left. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took with his wife, with his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. 
Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Lord, teach us today that your clear call on our lives comes with your covenant promise. Amen. Would you please be seated? So it's almost like after we get through with with reading Genesis chapter 11, and we've read about the table of nations, and, and, and we have seen how, how God has confused languages at Babel, and now all of a sudden, it's as if there's almost a line. Remember that, that when the Bible was put together, there were no chapters or verses, okay? That, that's, those are editorials. It, it, it's to help you and the reader and help us to be able to study, but that wasn't part of the original Hebrew text. But it's as if when you get to the end of chapter 11, you can draw a line and a whole new narrative begins. And it's the whole narrative of redemption. And you see God's call on this one man and he calls Abram and it is a clear call. Leave your family, leave your home, leave your country, leave your culture and go to the land that I am telling you to go. And then it tells us that Abram left. What we know is, is that God issues commands, but can, commands also require obedience. For all we know, this is the first encounter that Abram had ever had with the only true God, with the God of Scripture. For all we know, and, and, and what I believe the text is showing us is, is that prior to this event, there's no reason to believe that Abram wasn't anything but a polytheistic idolater. He would have been a product of his culture. And all of a sudden, the one true God comes to him and issues this call on his life, yet it demanded obedience. Now, place yourself in this situation. I think you'd be asking a lot of questions. Why? What if? How? What's the plan? Where are we stopping along the way? There are all kinds of questions that could be asked. And I don't know if you ever get frustrated with God. I know that's a lot to admit at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But at some point in our lives, even our Christian lives, we have been frustrated with God. We've been frustrated with His plans. We've been frustrated with His commands. We've been there before. And what we learn first off in this narrative is God is always obliged to keep His promises. But God is never obliged to give you all the reasons. You see, sometimes we're trusting the heart of God even when we don't understand the hand of God. We're trusting that God has got a good and perfect will for us, that His plans for us are perfect, that He is, Romans 8.28, working everything for our good. But in the midst of that, He's not giving every single detail or explaining that. So, so let's just break down verse 1 very quickly before we even move forward. He's told, number one, to leave his country. There is no one that's ever been called of God that has not been called to leave their old life. Now, when I say called, I'm not talking about a ministerial call. 
I'm talking about that God has ever placed a call on your life, a call to salvation, a call to repentance, maybe a call to ministry. But any form of call that God puts on an individual's life means that He is calling us from old to new. And so that's the first part of the call, that He tells him to leave his country. But He also tells him to leave his people. What were his people? Pagan idolaters that were absolutely known even 4,000 years ago for some of the most disgustingly immoral practices. If you, if you read about what took place there and what they would have been a part of, and we know that not only are we called to leave our old life, but we're now called not to let culture define us, which I think is an entire sermon in the day in which we live. Because it's so difficult to have a biblical worldview when the world we live in is not only it's post-Christian is what people were saying 10 years ago. I don't believe that we live in a post-Christian world anymore. We live in an anti-Christian world. So trying to understand what it looks like to go against the tide means that culture doesn't define us. And then he's told to leave his father's house. He's been in his father's house for 75 years. God's saying, no longer are you going to find your, your security at your dad's. No longer are you going to find your security at your home. From now on, I want you to find your security in me alone. What does the call of good God look like? It means it's a call to leave your old life. It's a call not to let culture define you. And it's a call to find security in God alone. Now, at this point, Abram doesn't know where he's going. He just knows he's going. At this point, Abram knows major changes are coming to his life. And some people <laughs> will tell you that they like change. You know what I call those people? Liars. Inherently, we don't like change. We, we like our habits. We like the same thing. We, 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 once we get comfortable, we don't want to change. Sometimes people don't even want to change if what they're doing doesn't make any sense. Even if their situation's bad, it's their situation and they don't want to change. And change is difficult. And so part of this call of God, we see this change that's coming about for, for two senior adult people having to face the fact that the journey, the journey is not always certain, but the leader of the journey is. And so God gives him the most magnificent covenant promise that you are going to see in fact this promise now is going to be the base outside of verses two and three the rest of the bible doesn't make sense genesis 12 two and three sets the stage for everything that takes place in the rest of scripture and so not only does god give him this call but then he gives him this unconditional covenant there's a difference in a conditional covenant, which God often gave, and an unconditional covenant. An unconditional covenant is what we see here. A conditional covenant is an if-then covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. If you obey, then I will bless. There are no conditions that are given in this covenant. Watch what God says. I will make you into a great nation. So what we see here... First and foremost, there is a national promise. Did God keep that promise? Abraham would die before he saw this promise come into existence. But the nation of Israel 
came from this man, Abram. That's the national promise. Then watch what else he says. He also says, I will bless you and make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's a personal promise. Did God bless Abraham personally? He had a miracle baby. He was the father of many nations. He was blessed with great wealth. And 4,000 years later, on a totally separate continent, there is a guy standing in front of you talking about him. He made his name great. And then watch this. It doesn't just end there. He says, I will bless those who bless you. This is important. This is important. This is important. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all, there's that word. Didn't we sing that a minute ago? All, there's that word again. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth. So we have a national blessing, a personal blessing, and then a worldwide universal blessing, all the people of the earth. Now, I don't have time to spend a lot on what I'm about to tell you, but understand this. Israel was called and made into a nation so that the Redeemer of all the world would come through Israel. But even before Christ was born, Israel's place was to be a light unto every Gentile nation, unto every heathen and pagan nation. And so there would be a blessing through Israel that was to come. So we have a national blessing, a personal blessing, an international blessing. And this is all to a senior adult couple who don't have any children. Given today's climate, I need to be careful how much time I spend on what I'm about to tell you. But I want you to listen and listen well because this is on all of our minds because it's all over the news right now. You're hearing about Hamas and the bombing of Israel and whether or not the United States should support Israel and what our feelings should be should be about Israel. I don't know how to make this any clearer to you. I will bless those who bless you. That is talking about Israel. When I tell you I am pro-Israel, you say, but Larry, many of the Jews have never come to faith in Christ. I pray, I pray that the Lord would still, and I believe He is. In fact, I know He is. There's going to be 12,000 from every single tribe. That's the 144,000 that are going to be redeemed in the tribulation. I can't go there. Y'all don't have two hours. But the point is, there is a national revival for Israel that is coming, but whether or not, whether or not they accept Jesus as the Messiah or not does not affect the fact that they are a people chosen of God. And when we think about the people of Israel, especially, it, it blows my mind that you've got a group of people who stand for morality and the fear of God and the hope for humanity and you have wickedness and evil that wants to kill and oppress them as a Christian there is no debate anti-semitism has no place in the country no place in the church we support Israel we support the Jewish people and we recognize that whether or not we agree on everything the Savior of the world came from Israel and praise God were it not for the Jews I would still be lost in my sin because it is from them and from the line of David and from the seed of Abraham that the Redeemer was found. Friends, we support the Jews. Amen?
I did that a lot quicker than I thought I was going to. But what's interesting about this is I told you in the introduction that he was from Ur of the Chaldees. If you go back, just glance back with me at chapter 11, you see that they set out, that his father set out from Ur of the Chaldees. I'm right there at the very end in, in verse 31. It says, Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, and the wife, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from where? Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But they came to Haran and settled there. Did God command Abram to go to Haran or to go to Canaan? They're different places. He was commanded, and I want you to see this. I think this needs to be on the outset. This story isn't about hero Abraham. This story is about hero God. From the very outset, we said we're, we're going to talk about next week, Abram lied. But even before he lied, he was halfway obedient. And halfway obedient really is disobedient. Because he does leave his house, but he's told to leave his native country, leave his relatives, and leave his father's family. What does he do? He takes his dad. We're not told that the call came to Terah. That was his dad. We're not told the call came to Terah. We're told that the call came to Abram. And what was he supposed to do with his daddy? Leave him. Did he leave him? No. Not only did he not leave him, he took his nephew. We know that Lot's daddy was dead, and I don't know, probably Abram had been like a father to Lot. So Lot tags along. So now we set out on the journey, but the very command that you were given, you've broken it before you got out of her. You're not supposed to take these people. Lead these people. Can, can, can I just tell you, and you need to know this, whatever you take from your old life into your new life, is going to cause you problems. There are a lot of people that get saved, but they want to take their habits and their sin and the people from their old life and mix them into their new life. And you wonder why it is that the faith of God is not so radically changing your life. And it's still because you love sin. It's you love your old life and you love everything about it. And so here, what we see, you're going to see, well, is that a big deal? You're going to find out it's a real big deal. It's a real big deal. Why did they stop in Haran? Why do you think they stopped in Haran? I'll tell you why I think it's obvious that they stopped in Haran. One of the reasons is, is that there were two sinners for the worship of the moon god Sin. One of them, Ur of the Chaldees, what was the second center for worship of the moon god sin? I've kind of given the hand away. Where do you think it was? Haran. Abraham's daddy and his family had been polytheistic worshipers, and certainly the moon god sin would have been the highest of the polytheistic deities. And I believe with all of my heart, you get to Haran, it's not as big as Ur, but it's still a big city, and they have a church here. And so they set up camp right in the middle of there's a material abundance all around, this seat of worship, and they stayed, the Bible says, how long? 
20 minutes. They stayed until his father died. Most people will tell you that that's about 75 years. That's a long time to get off course. Moves to Haran. Moves gets there. And then when he gets there, he's gotten hung up on this journey of faith. Now, I don't know what it was like for Abram when his father died. I imagine it was impactful. If he's anything like any normal person, it was probably a sad day. And, and I don't mean what I'm about to say. I, I don't want you to, to, to hear me being insensitive about this. But the best thing for Abram was his daddy dying. Because God had given him a command that he was never going to follow through unless he was able to move on from there. Now, I'm not telling you that I wish tragedy or hurt on anybody, but listen to me. You've all had it happen. You've all been victims of it. And what I will tell you is, is that great moves of God in people's lives often take place after Horrible things have taken place. Difficult things have taken place. Painful things have taken place. And you grieve, and after you grieve, God uses pain in an incredible way to move you and motivate you and challenge you and change you. And sometimes, were it not for those events, you'd never do anything different. You'd never change. You'd never move. You'd never repent. And it's not that we wish any of that hurt on ourselves, but friends, it's inevitable in life. And because it's inevitable, it is either going to drive a wedge of you closer to the Lord or it's going to drive you away from the Lord. Notice that the Bible very clearly talks about these different places that Abram was. He was in Ur of the Chaldees, and then he finds himself, after being in Ur of the Chaldees, he goes to Haran as he is moving towards Canaan or towards the promised land. I will tell you, friends, the Bible says that you are either in Ur, which is the land of death and darkness. You are in Haran, which is the halfway. Or you are in Canaan, which is the land of power and blessing. I'm worried that there's a lot of people that believe themselves to be saved that will die in Haran. And here's why. You're in Ur, you get the call of God on your life. You have the gospel preached over you. Maybe you even get convicted of sin. Maybe you decide to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you make some changes. And maybe you even move from your life. But you get to a place, a place like Haran, and what you have found is religion. And there in religion, some outward things, some externals look different. You're living in a different place. You're around some different people. Maybe some things have changed. But you've never actually in full surrender gotten to the place where God called you to go. He never called you to Haran. He called you to the land of promise. And there will be many people that find themselves at the steps of heaven and say, but I did. I left her of the Chaldees. And the Lord is going to look and say, I never called you to Haran. I called you into a land of hope and a land of promise and a land of freedom. And you never got to the point where you fully committed and turned over your life to me i'm telling you if you're living in haran you are between two worlds and the lord never meant for you to be there as we walk through the story of abram i want to make it very clear 
that the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the intellect of God is perfect. So God doesn't use difficult times to find out what we will do. I think sometimes people misunderstand how God tests people. He doesn't look and say, well, I wonder how they'll react if I do this. If he's omnipotent and infinite, he already knows that. Can we agree with that? So then why does he test? He tests to reveal you to you so that you will see what's in your heart. You will see how you will behave and how you will act. And so when we, we read this, we find out now that finally, when he took his possessions and he went for the land of Canaan, and we are told then what happened. Verse 6, that while he was there, it says that Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, and at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. I don't know where anybody got the idea that if you got saved, you were going to have less problems. He gets to the land of promise. This is the land of milk and honey, and the Bible's clear that we don't even get through this first passage, but there's this little phrase, there were Canaanites in the land. It wasn't that ever, in fact, those Canaanites... Those were going to be the people that would be a thorn in Israel's side through the whole Old Testament. You know what Philistines were? Canaanites. Everyone that we read about that was there, they were, that was a Canaanite. That's a, a large group of people. So he finds himself there in Canaanite land. And the reason that that's important is because of what it said before that. Because it says he found himself in front of the great oaks or the great trees at Morah. Now, why would that have been significant? Remember that all religions are dominated by the occult and by idolatry and by polytheism. And what would these great trees have symbolized? This was a symbol of fertility. In fact, many people would go there either looking to get pregnant under the trees or hoping the trees would give off some magical quality because they were so large and, and fruitful that that would rub off on the people and that they would get the blessing of fertility. Now, what's Abraham and Sarah's problem? They're infertile. They, they hadn't had any children. Promises aren't looking good. We're talking about a woman that at this point is postmenopausal. And so they go to these trees because they've got this promise. Now, am I positive that they went there for a fertility cult? No, I'm not. Bible doesn't tell us that. But what I am positive of is that other people who were there are, were there for that. And what I am positive of is that while they are there, it isn't the moon god sin that shows up. It isn't the fertility cult gods that show up. It isn't the idols that show up. Who shows up? What? Oh, this is good. The Lord, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. And what does he say? To your offspring. It's a huge word in Scripture. It's one letter. You can circle it. You can highlight it. You can underline it. To your offspring, I, Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, I, the great I am, I will give this land. In other words, 
you're going to receive this land, your offering's going to receive this land, and I'm going to give it to you. I don't care what tree you're standing under, that whether you're at the Oaks of Mara or wherever you are, your wife's going to get pregnant, and it's going to be a miracle, and the miracle is going to be because of me. So no matter where you go or what tree you stand under, you believe me, friends, the miracle is because of God alone. The miracle is not in handkerchiefs. The miracle is not in water. The miracle is not in some healing buffoon that goes around laying his hands on people. The healing is by God alone. It Does God still do miracles? I get that question all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. God is a miracle-working God, but He will remind you at the Oaks of Mora that when He speaks to you, that if you're looking for your blessing, whether it's fertility or anything else, if you're looking for it anywhere else besides from Yahweh, then you are looking at a diluted and a polluted and an unable spring. We're not even through the first nine verses yet. Unbelievable. He issues this covenant and assures Abram that it wasn't superstitious hope, but his promises that were reality. And so we're told now that Abram did what? He constructed an altar and then continued south. And where he continued south was a place that some of you may have heard of. He ended up in a place that would eventually become Jerusalem. He built an altar there as well. And so what we see in this passage is that everywhere that Abram builds these altars, that they, they then become major centers of Israelite worship. And you say, well, Larry, we don't really build altars today. We should. We absolutely should. And here's what I mean. I think some people think, we build an altar when we get saved. We, we have this monument to our salvation. But the Christian life does not stop at salvation. It starts at salvation. How many of you have had God do something in your life since you've been saved? God's done something in you, through you, for you, with you since you've been saved. That's where we ought to put an altar that's where we ought to say, this is a place of demarcation in my life. This is a place, an altar of worship. And we understand that those are parts of our life as we walk through the Lord, as we walk with the Lord. And then it tells us that Abraham pitched his tent between two places, Bethel and Ai. What does the name Bethel mean? Anybody know just off the top of your head? The word Bethel means house of God. What does the word Ai mean? Place of ruin. House of God, place of ruin. I can tell you that every single one of us in our Christian life, you are pitching your tent somewhere between the house of God and the place of ruin. And it's not that after God calls you, you don't have to worry about it anymore because you've been living your life in the promised land. I think we've got this demented view of salvation because we think that somehow that God has delivered us right from the penalty of sin 
So because He's delivered us from the penalty of sin, we don't have to worry about the power of sin anymore. But God in salvation came to deliver you not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. And what that means is, even after you're saved, that there's a temptation to go to Ai. There's a temptation to be in the place of ruin, in the place of rot, and in the place of sin. And yet Abraham pitched his tent. It's fascinating to me. He's extremely wealthy. Abraham becomes an... When God said, I'm going to bless you, he didn't lie. He blessed him personally, and Abraham was wealthy. But what we see is he lived in a tent his whole life. Why? Because he was a traveler, a sojourner, an alien, and a pilgrim. Now, why is that significant? He was always on the move. Life cannot stand still, especially a Christian life. It's got to keep moving. Abram gets to Canaan. Abram gets to Canaan. But what do we learn? What do we know? Is that Abram didn't see all of these promises come to fruition. But what we also know is that Canaan, the promised land, is representative all through Scripture. Certainly it is a real place. And by the way, that real place still exists. There's still Canaanites in the land. Do you know that? All the fighting we see, there are still Canaanites trying to gain control of that land. But the reason that that promised land is so important is, yes, the physical location and the, the, the real people, the Jews, it's important. But it also helps us to see that God has also given a promise to Abraham and to all of his spiritual descendants, which, by the way, you and I are, because you're blessed through all the peoples of the world. Who is that? You and me. We're all the peoples of the world because we've been blessed through him. Jesus Christ, descendant of Abram, sent to the world through the people of the Jews, die on the cross, raised from the grave, give redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You and I are recipients of this incredibly powerful promise. Now, because of that, what we know about Abram is that he died without seeing the complete fulfillment of all of these promises. But when Abram breathed his last, if he thought the promised land that he walked into was fantastic, friends, the reason that we live by faith is because we recognize that there is a Canaan land, a Beulah land, a promised land, a heavenly kingdom, that which is not our own. Hebrews 11 says a lot about Abram. And it says that he considered himself not a citizen of this world, but he understood that there was a promise, that there was even something greater. Friends, what I want you to know is the reason that we keep on the move, the reason that we don't pitch our tents in AI, but we keep moving towards Bethel and towards the promised land is that we recognize is that you too have been called from the place of destruction, which is Ur of the Chaldees, that you too have been tempted to camp out in Haran, and that you too, if you're truly saved by the power of God, have been called to somewhere greater, somewhere more impressive, somewhere more wonderful. And friends, I want you to know that we are the recipients of the international blessing that was made in Genesis chapter 12. So I praise God that he is a deliverer, that he is a redeemer, and that he is a friend. What we know about Abram is he had a lot of faults. 
We're going to see a lot more mistakes before this series is over. But you know what the Bible called him? A friend of God. I want to be called a friend of God. But there's only one way I'll ever be called that. Friends aren't people who let people down. I let God down all the time. Friends aren't people who have blasphemed and sinned against and hurt. So why is it that, the, that I can be a friend of God? It's because I've received that international blessing that it was talked about. The reason I'm a friend of God is because I know His Son. His Son sent through Abraham to be born and to die so that I might have life and that I, Romans said, that I might be called a friend of God. Friend, that can be your story. I'm asking you not just to leave her. I'm asking you to think about whether or not you're still stuck in Haran. Maybe it's time for a promised land light. Maybe it's time to surrender your life and your soul and ask God to do what only He can do. I can tell you today that the Holy Spirit, by the power of His Word, issues a call on your life. The call doesn't come to a church collective. It comes to an individual. It comes to you. And I'm asking you to respond, to say yes to the Lord, to let Him do what only He has to do and make out of your life something more than you could ever ask, dream, hope, or imagine. That's the power of God, and that's the power of the gospel. Stand with me. Lord, as we stand together today, we are thankful for Your Word and thankful for Your covenant, thankful for Your promise, thankful for Your call. And Lord, we come under the humble recognition that we desperately need You. So Lord, today we thank You that we see all throughout history, Lord, You had a plan to rescue the dying and the perishing. And Lord, it was for Your honor and it was for Your own glory. So Lord God, today I pray that as we understand that great plan, that you would allow us to hear the call out of Ur, the call out of Haran, the call to the promised land, and that, Lord, I pray that we would pitch our tent towards Bethel. Lord, help us to hear clearly and obey. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you that in your great wisdom that we still exclaim, Jesus, saves thank you jesus all my hope all my hope is in you because all my sins can be forgiven by your blood so today we lift up your name and we recognize that that name is wonderful we recognize that it is only because of that name that the world can come to you to have their sins removed lord may someone come to you today to have their guilty stains taken. In Jesus' name, amen. Leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known.